Welcome to Bible study tonight. So glad you've decided to join us. As I said, we're studying through the book of Acts because we want to relive it. Tonight we are studying through Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9 is a long chapter. We'll likely not get through it all, but who knows, we may. But we'll definitely start and see where we end off. You've all received a handout tonight. What I'll do is read the introduction or the summary, and then we'll go verse by verse, line by line, precept upon precept. So Acts chapter 9 records Saul's conversion and the works of Peter. The chapter begins with Saul's journey near Damascus, where he hears the Lord speak to him. He's blinded by a light and led into the city of Damascus, where he meets a fellow by the name of Ananias, who restores his sight and baptizes him. Uh, Meanwhile, Peter heals um, Aeneas at Lydia, and the Hellenist Jews plot to murder Saul, but he escapes to Tarsus, his hometown. And then the chapter ends with Saul preaching in Damascus and confounding the Jews who lived there. So it's a big chapter. There's lots going on. But let's start at verse 1 and um, see what happens. Verse 1 and 2, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So you might remember, we've been talking about the dispersion of the Jews in and around this time. We know that Christianity has its roots in Jerusalem. Jesus said, go to Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit, and then you will receive power from on high to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so it started in Jerusalem. The disciples were preaching in in the temple. Every day they were preaching there and making converts and healing people. And it caught the attention of the religious leaders. It caught the attention of the high priest. And they tried to stop it. And they uh, arrested uh, Peter and James and threatened them and said, stop preaching in the name. And they said, whether it's right for us to listen to you, we can't but preach the name of Jesus. And so in order to put down this movement, what they saw as a rebellion, they turned up the persecution. And that caused many Christians to flee Jerusalem and go into Judea. And then the persecution followed them there. And so they fled to Samaria. They went north to Samaria. And the persecution followed them there. And so this uh, gospel is, is, is problematic for the people who have religion but don't have Jesus. And so they want the people that have Jesus out of the way. 
They want to put this movement down, but it seems like the harder they try, the, the harder it is to stop it. And so now this movement ends up in Damascus. You see, the religious leaders in Jerusalem were happy that it was out of Jerusalem because that's where their power and authority was. So, I mean, they didn't really care if it was anywhere else. It just needed to be out of Jerusalem. But you have this very zealous persecutor of Christians named Saul of Tarsus who's not satisfied with it just being out of Jerusalem. He wants it gone completely. And so he goes to the high priest in Jerusalem and he asks for a letter. Give me authority so that I can go to the surrounding areas and find these followers of the way, these Christians, and I can bring them back to Jerusalem in handcuffs or rope or whatever he wanted to bind them with bring them back here and persecute them and prosecute them and and maybe even execute them for their faith in this Jesus. And so that's what Saul is doing. He's going to Damascus because he wants to find Christians. Jesus said of his disciples that he would make them fishers of men. Well, Paul is hunting Christians. He's going with this authority of the high priest to hunt them down to, uh, to flush them out and to bring them back to Jerusalem to prosecute them. Verse 1 says he's still breathing threats and murder. He hates these people. He does not want to share a city with them. He does not want to share a country with them. He breathes threats and he, from what I can tell, is actually executing Christians. And he's going to stop at nothing to continue to, he's going to continue to do it until they're eradicated. Okay, let's go on to, uh, well, let's look at the, the notes there. The zeal of Saul in persecuting the church leads him to go beyond the borders of Jerusalem and Judea. And he secured papers from the high priest. And so he goes to Syria, where Damascus is the capital city. Let's read verse 3 to 6. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly, that's a word we've heard lots in this book, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. Skip ahead a few chapters to chapter 22. Paul loved talking about his conversion experience. He talked about it often, Dr. Luke records at least two other instances where Paul gave his personal conversion testimony. We can read it in Acts chapter 22, starting at verse 6. Paul is talking now. See, in in chapter 9, Luke is writing the historical fact or the facts of what happened. And now here in Acts 22, Paul is telling 
what happened with or in his own words. And so in verse 6, Paul says, As I was on my way and drew near to, to Damascus around noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And now there are those who were with me that saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And look at verse 10. It's a detail that Luke does not include in chapter 9. But Paul says, he asked the Lord, what shall I do? What shall I do? And the Lord said to me, rise and go to Damascus, and there you will be told what is appointed unto you to do. Saul meets the living Christ who he did not know. We uh, are confident that Saul did not see Jesus during his life and ministry. He may have seen Jesus on the day of his crucifixion. But we are pretty confident that he did not encounter Jesus while Jesus was alive and ministering on the earth. So he was not an eyewitness like the other apostles were until now. Now he becomes an eyewitness to Jesus. He's blinded by this glorious light, this radiant light who speaks to him and asks him, why are you persecuting me? Or he says, uh, yeah, he says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then Saul asks, well, who are you? And he says, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. And so Saul has this encounter with the living Christ, the resurrected Christ, whom up until that point he did not know, but to whom he yielded in obedience upon coming to know. So here in verse 9, we read that he asked, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am the one you are persecuting. I am Jesus. And verse 6 says, But rise and enter the city. But Paul tells us that in between asking, Who are you? and the Lord telling him to rise and go into the city, he asks Jesus another question, which is, what must I do? What must I do? And so when Saul meets Jesus, has a true or encounter with the true living God, his only response is to yield in obedience to that God. And because he yielded in obedience to God, he was converted immediately kind of tying into what we talked about last week. His faith, his belief, his encounter with this Jesus was accompanied with the work of obedience. The Bible says that he rose from the ground. He got up. He did what Jesus told him to do. He got up and went to the house. He yielded in obedience to Christ. I wanted to say something else there. What was that? Yielded in obedience. Let me just see if I can trigger my memory. 
Yeah, I guess, like I was saying, it ties into what we talked about last week. It was a work that led to true saving faith. Oh yeah, that's what I want to say. Hebrews 5, 9. Um, and having been made perfect, Jesus, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So we, we receive eternal salvation through trust and obedience. Trust is belief. We, we believe and we obey. We, we offer our life or we open the door to our heart. We, as Ro- or, yeah, Romans 12 and 1 says, we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. So there's an offering that's made. It's not good works that save us. But there is this work of obedience that brings about salvation. As I talked about on Sunday night past, you can believe lots of facts about Jesus, but those facts won't save you. Belief and trust in what Jesus said and did is what saves you. And so there's an obedient work that has to take place in order for us to be truly converted as Paul was. Let's look at verse 7. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Now remember, Paul says over in in chapter 22 that the men that were with him heard the voice, but they didn't understand what was being said. This was Jesus specifically calling Saul for a particular purpose. But I'm glad these men were there with him because... Saul was blinded, didn't know where he was going. These men, uh, though they saw the light and heard the voice, didn't understand it. But Paul understood what the, what the Lord told him to do, and he asked the men to help him get to Damascus and find somebody, find Ananias. Let's read verse 8 to 16. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open. He saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and he did not eat or drink. Verse 10, now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And let's just stop here for a moment. Recall verse 1. Ananias, in verse 1, was likely going to be one of the people that Saul bound and brought back to Jerusalem for prosecution and potentially execution. But by verse 10, he's going to this fellow's house because this fellow is going to um, restore his sight and baptize him in water. Pretty fascinating. That's what the Holy Spirit can do. That's how powerful he is. He can take a man like Saul and convert him into who we will later meet as the Apostle Paul, a radical transformation. So there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying 
And he has seen a vision. And in a vision, a man named Ananias came in and laid hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But look at verse 13. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. We always have a tendency to argue with God. Right? But Lord. I love that. But Lord. It's like, okay, is he Lord or not? Like if he's Lord, obey him. No questions asked. But I'm so grateful that he's patient. He's long-suffering. And he puts up with our questions and allows us to ask them. And so Ananias, of course, has an objection, and it's a reasonable one. But verse 15 says, The Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry out, or sorry, yeah, to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So Saul, who was going to become Paul in just a little while, was chosen by God to carry the name of Christ to three places. To the Gentiles, to kings, and to the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Blinded Saul is led into Damascus, and Ananias, a believer, is sent to him. Ananias is rightfully dumbfounded and fearful of Saul, but Jesus explains his purpose and his calling. Now, we might not have the same purpose and calling as Saul, but the same that was said of Saul is said of each and every one of us, that uh, we are God's chosen instruments. He's chosen us for a purpose. But we have to, like Saul, obey. We have to get up off the ground and go to where he calls us to go. Do what he calls us to do. Say what he tells us to say. And, you know, God has this incredible plan for Saul. And God's plan always includes suffering. Suffering for the sake of the name. God is not the source of that suffering. Sin, this fallen world, this fallen culture, fallen society, that's the source of our suffering. But when we live for the sake of the name, we will always suffer for the sake of the name. That's why a lot of people who follow Jesus when he was feeding them and preaching, you know, eloquent sermons, at least, you know, to their ears, that's how it sounded. But then when Jesus got to the tough part, to the hard sayings, they walked away because they weren't willing to suffer for the name. There'll always be people who will follow along for a little while until it gets hard. Those are the people who 
are the rocks in the parable of the sower. The seed falls on them and it springs up, but in a time of temptation, they fall away for they have no roots. And so I trust tonight that though I say it with fear and trembling, you, like me, are willing to obey the Lord even when we have to suffer for it or though we will have to suffer for it. Verse 17 to 25. Let's continue the story. Here we go. Yeah, there. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul. Isn't that amazing? He knew right away that this Saul of Tarsus, who was persecuting Jesus himself by persecuting his followers, is now a brother in Christ. Brother Saul, the Lord who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Interesting. Saul is converted on the road, down on the dirt. He's converted. He's baptized into the name of Jesus. He's baptized into the church. But later on, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. Why? Because he's a chosen instrument of God. He's going to be a witness. Jesus said to uh, you know, the 500 witnesses back in Acts chapter 1, go to Jerusalem and wait. Don't do anything until you get power. 500 potentially went, only about 110 stuck around. They had to tarry too long. They had other things to do. But the ones that waited were filled with power from on high for witness. So the same thing happens here to Saul. He's converted. He's baptized into the Spirit. He's given, he's given the thing that he will explain over and over in his epistles. He's baptized into the Spirit. He's given the seal of the Holy Spirit of promise. But then he's also filled with the Holy Spirit, the dunamis, the power of the Holy Spirit for witness. Verse 18, And immediately something like scales fell off his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Remember, he wasn't eating. Three days went by. He didn't eat. So he was probably getting a little weak. And so he had some food, and he was strengthened. And then for some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. I keep going back to verse 1 of this chapter. Like what he went there to do and what he ended up doing when he got there is so different. He actually was spending time with these disciples. Uh, he was probably learning from them. They were probably discipling him and, and, and teaching him, catechizing him teaching him uh, the ways of Jesus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. I love that word. Immediately. We talked about this on Sunday morning in Pastor Joel's sermon. Once you are truly saved, 
you are qualified to preach the gospel. Immediately, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, just like the woman at the well. And, and that happened pre-cross, pre-Holy Spirit. As soon as she believed that Jesus was the Messiah, she went into town and said, come meet this man who told me everything I ever did. And Saul was the same. He had an incredible conversion experience, miraculous. But whether you had a miraculous conversion or not, once you are truly converted, you're qualified to preach the gospel of Jesus. And so he goes to the synagogue, and what does he say? He says the most basic gospel message, Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. In order to believe the true gospel, you have to first believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And second, and these are probably like on the same level, you have to believe that he rose from the dead. I mean, isn't that what Paul says? Confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. I mean, those are the two fundamental things you have to believe. If you don't, this thing doesn't matter. This religion or this way is no different than any other. But we have a Savior who is God Almighty, and we have a Savior who is not in a tomb, but who is raised. And so he preaches this gospel message in the synagogue. Jesus is the Son of God. It's that simple. You don't know what to say? When somebody asks you to give an account for the hope that lies within you, just say, I believe Jesus is the Son of God, and that he rose from the dead. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of all those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength, and he confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. So his first gospel message, Jesus is the Son of God. And why were the people amazed? Because they saw the transformation. Wow, isn't, wasn't that Saul? Isn't, wasn't he coming here to like, kill the followers of the way? Now he is one? Wow. Now we know that Saul was a brilliant man. I mean, he was a Jew of Jews. A Roman of Romans. He was a scholar. He graduated from the uh, most well-known and prestigious university in that time, which was the University of Tarsus. I mean, he was brilliant theologically and philosophically. He was amazing. He knew the Old Testament inside and out, I'm sure. And that's why Jesus said uh, when he was confronted by the, the religious scholars of his day uh, to give them a sign. Jesus said, you have the sign. You search the scriptures, the Old Testament, hoping that in them you will find life. All the while not realizing that these are they which testify of me. So Paul knew that Old Testament inside and out. And when you read his epistles, you'll discover that he knows the Old Testament. 
I mean, yes, he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write it, but he wasn't, the words weren't dictated to him. The Holy Spirit used him to be the author of these epistles. And so Paul often quotes the Old Testament. He gets it inside and out. And so it didn't take him long to start connecting all these dots. After he realized that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, and that he rose from the dead, all the blanks started to get filled in for him. To the point where not long after, he was able to confound the Jews with proof and with evidence that Jesus was, in fact, the Son of God. You see, they were, they were probably able to confuse the everyday, ordinary believer in Jesus Christ who just believed that simple message, he's the Son of God, he rose again. That's it, that's all I need. They were probably able to confuse those Christians with their wise and eloquent words and you know, maybe their big words. Uh, but they couldn't get one over on Saul. And he was able to ultimately confound and confuse them with proof, with evidence that Jesus was the Christ. And when many days had passed, <laughs> look at this, the Jews plotted to kill him. They couldn't win the argument, and so what's the next step? we got to get him. We can't convince him otherwise, and in fact, he's convincing us, and we don't want to change. There's what's called cognitive dissonance. There's the facts that we're presented and the things that we can see against what we actually want to believe, whether it's true or not. And so I think that was going on here with the Jews in Damascus. And so they said, we got to get rid of this guy. They plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples, I don't know how many days he was there. I don't think he was there too long. But before he was done, he had disciples. But his disciples uh, took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall lowering him in a basket. Pretty fascinating stuff. I actually, and, and, and this is a point I want to make here, I actually did not know this detail until I was studying this chapter for this study. I guess I just overlooked it or whatnot. I never knew that he was lowered down in a basket. What's amazing is Paul never mentions that again. He mentions his conversion experience two other times recorded in the book of Acts, and he talks all about it in the book of Philippians. But he never talks about being lowered down through an opening in a wall. He never talks about his own personal encounters and, and what the Lord had done for him particularly because he doesn't want that to be his boast. Remember, he said elsewhere, I will make my boast in Christ alone. And so in our own personal lives, God has done incredible things, amazing things. And we are right to share them, but never at the expense of sharing the gospel and the truth of Jesus Christ and what he has done for absolutely everybody. 
So, don't feel bad about sharing your personal testimony and the things that are unique to you. But make sure that you don't do that, of course, at the expense of preaching Jesus and making him real big. Hi. Verse 26. Verse 26 to 29. Saul in Jerusalem. And so when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples that were in Jerusalem. I mean, there wasn't many left. Because of his persecution, they were scattered into all of Judea and Samaria and up into Syria and Damascus. But there was a few there, particularly the the Big Twelve. They were still there. And he attempted to join them, but they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But here's Barnabas again. We remember Barnabas from Acts chapter 4 and the story of Ananias and Sapphira. He's the one that sold the property and gave the proceeds to the apostles, and Ananias and Sapphira saw it and said, oh, we should do that. So here's Barnabas, the son of encouragement. He took him, Saul, and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. And so he went in and out among the disciples at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, against the Greeks, So remember, uh, back in verse uh, 15, God says to Ananias, not the same one who dropped dead, back in in, uh, chapter 4, a different one, said to Ananias, Go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to carry my name before Gentiles. Well, here he is doing it. He's preaching to the Hellenists, to the Greeks. And how can he do that? Because he was a... Master in Greek philosophy. He graduated from the most prestigious Greek university at the time, the University of Tarsus. And so he's disputing against them. And they were seeking to kill him. You see, the name of Jesus and the gospel of Jesus is the greatest philosophy ever. It's better than anything. It's the greatest story ever told. It's the most powerful argument ever made. The story of Jesus. And so Saul is bringing this this name of Jesus to these Hellenists, to these Greeks, to these philosophers. And he's probably bringing them to school. He's probably making them feel stupid in a good way. He's doing it boldly, but he's preaching the gospel to them. And they don't want to hear it. More cognitive dissonance. They hear the truth. They see it. It's plain. But they want to believe this over here. And so there's that gap in between. And so they plot to kill Saul. So the Jews want to kill him. The Greeks want to kill him. The disciples are afraid of him at this point. And um, we'll learn in a few chapters, well, particularly in chapter 22, he's before a king. He's being, uh, he's being prosecuted by a king. 
So all these people that he's supposed to bring the name of Jesus to want to kill him. And remember I said suffering is always a part of God's plan. Not because he's the cause of it, but because we'll always suffer for the name. And in verse 16 of of chapter 9, God says, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And so he's doing it right away. From the very beginning, he didn't get much of a, of a honeymoon period. He started suffering right away. Verse 30, And when the, the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. They sent him back to his hometown. When the plot was discovered to slay Saul, he's taken to Caesarea and then returns to his hometown. Let's read the next couple of verses, 32, 33. Oh, no. No, 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 no. We're not there yet. Are we? No. Like I said, this study Bible that I use for Bible study, I really only use it for this. And I'm used to reading from two columns, and this is like big paragraphs, so I always lose my verse here. Just one moment. 31? There we are. Uh, So the church throughout all of Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace... And was being built up and was walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit and it multiplied. So remember the church in Judea and Galilee and Samaria was dispersed because of the persecution, particularly of Saul. But now that Saul had been converted, they had peace and they were being built up again. They weren't walking in the fear of Saul now. They were walking again in the fear of the Lord, the person they should have been walking in the fear of the entire time. But it stands to reason that if we were being persecuted the same way, we'd, we'd have a little bit of natural fear too. But now because Saul had been converted, converted, they're walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Spirit and the church multiplies. Now in verse 32, we're going to switch main characters, switch protagonists, and we're going to go back to Peter's story. Now, Peter's story in the book of Acts basically comes to an end at the end of this chapter, and then we continue to hear about Saul, who is going to become Paul. Uh, So let's read some of the last recorded history of Peter. We will hear about him more. And of course, we've, we've studied his first letter last year, which is an amazing letter. But um, we're not going to hear a whole lot more from Peter from now on in the rest of this book, particularly. But verse 32 says, Now as Peter went here and there among all of them, he came down also to the saints who were in Lydda. And there he found a man named Aeneas, he was bedridden for eight years, and he was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise up and make your bed. And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. And so here we can see Um, the Apostle Peter operating in the apostolic sign gift, the sign gift of healing. 
And the reason that he particularly had this sign gift at this time, it was resident in him because he was an apostle. The reason he had this sign gift was to prove the authority of his ministry and the authority of his message. We're going to talk a lot about this on Sunday morning, the sign gifts. Have they continued or have they ceased? Spoiler, they have continued. But in this particular um, way of being resident in a person to use virtually on command, and we know that it was used... um, it was, there, was a, there was an instance, at least one instance, where it was used not on command when the, Peter, or the, the shadow of Peter passed over a, a, a man and he was healed. So the sign gifts have continued. Yes, they certainly have. Jesus still heals today. We can still say exactly what Peter said. Jesus Christ heals you. We can do that today. We The church has always been able to do that. So the sign gifts still exist. Jesus still heals. But here we see an instance of Peter operating in a gift that was resident in him to confirm the authority of his ministry and message. And remember Peter and the other apostles, some of the other apostles anyway, who had these uh, sign gifts, they wrote Letters They wrote the New Testament scriptures. And for us now, those scriptures have become the ultimate sign, the final authority. Um, Watching someone get healed and believing that they're healed won't save anyone. Reading this book and believing the gospel that's in it will save you. And so the signs at that time particularly were for the, the affirmation of the apostles' ministry and message, but they still exist today. They have not ceased. They will cease. 1 Corinthians 12 tells us that one day they'll cease, but that day has not yet come. But again, I'm getting ahead of myself. That's Sunday morning's message. Verse 36 Got another healing. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which is translated to mean Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. She was full of the gifts of the Spirit too. She had all kinds of gifts. She had incredible gifts. She was full of good works, alms works, so for the poor is a direct translation, and charity. Verse 37, in those days she became ill and she died. And when they had washed her or prepared her body for burial, they laid her in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples hearing that Peter was in Lydda sent two men to him and urged him, please come to us without delay. Now, what do you think? They wanted Peter to perform last rites and do a funeral? Or did they want Peter to come and raise her? Raise her. He's an apostle. He has the sign gifts resident in him. He can use them on command as Jesus could. So they wanted him to come down without delay. 
So Peter rose and went with them, the two men that were sent to get him. And when he arrived, they took Peter to the upper room, and all the widows stood beside him weeping. And they showed the tunics and the other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. It's amazing. Peter shows up and he gets a fashion show. They're there and they're showing him all the tunics. Look at what she made me. Look, And it's interesting, it was, it was widows that were showing him these tunics because these, again, were people that had low status in society. They likely did not, they, they didn't have much money. They didn't have much food, much clothing. And so the good works and, and things that this um, Tabitha was doing was providing clothing to these widows. But Peter uh, put them all outside and he knelt down and he prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. See what I'm saying? These sign gifts are resident in these apostles to confirm their ministry and message. They can use them on command. He turns to the body and he says, Tabitha, rise up. Jesus said those exact words to Lazarus. Lazarus, come forth. And she opened her eyes. Now listen. I'll, I'll, just, I'll just be totally honest. When, when I w- was looking at my dad after he'd passed, I said these words. Because why wouldn't you? But he didn't rise. That, that, that gift's not resident in me. That doesn't mean I don't, didn't pray it. Didn't believe it. So Peter says it. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand. And he raised her up. And then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa. And many believed in the Lord. And they stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. So remember, these gifts, these sign gifts, these miracles, signs, and wonders, they're amazing. They don't save anyone. All the people in Joppa didn't believe that, that Dorcas or uh, Tabitha was healed. I mean, they did. But that's not what is recorded here, that they believed in the healing. It says they believed in the Lord. They believed in the one who ultimately performed the healing. They didn't believe in Peter. Peter didn't perform the healing. God performed it through him by the power that was in him. But the people believed the Lord. And they stayed in Joppa for many days with one named Simon. 